Welcome back to Teacher's Lounge. I am Peter Medlin. We are a podcast here at WNIJ. We tell the stories of education with the help of educators. So the teachers that you hear on this show are all suggested by our listeners. So if you've got someone in your life that you think we should talk to, someone that deserves a spotlight, email us teacherslounge at niu.edu. Obviously, there's no apostrophe in the email URL, so just teacherslounge at niu.edu. Today on the show, Ayla Pechkowski. She taught English and special ed at the Roosevelt Community Education Center in Rockford, and now, starting this year, she's going to be in an administrative role at East High School, which is also in Rockford. Now, I will say that our more perceptive listeners may just recognize Ayla's name because she actually got a shout-out a couple episodes back. That was in Xavier Hutzel's valedictorian speech. He was the valedictorian from Roosevelt. As you remember, we heard those a couple episodes back. It's kind of a deep cut, but I was hoping that, hey, maybe some of our more devoted listeners' ears may have perked up. Uh, Anyway, I talked to Ayla about her mixed feelings, about schools reopening this fall, about teaching her students about news literacy during the pandemic, and why it seems like there are so many English teachers that have been on this show. I think that when we analyze, like, you know, intentions and this and that within characters or just the ability to talk about things that maybe aren't so concrete, like numbers or, you know, I think it lets people almost feel this connection, like what it means to be human. I promised in the last episode of this show that this one would be chock full of news stories and we keep our promises here on Teacher's Lounge. I will tell you that much right now. Up first, a few weeks ago, Immigration and Customs Enforcement announced that international students must take some of their classes in person. If not, they could be deported from the United States. And thankfully, the Trump administration changed course a few days later and rescinded that decision. But it was a really stressful few days for a lot of those international students. And that's only a small example of the uncertainty that they've had to face during COVID-19. When he first saw the news from ICE, Sina Tayebati thought it was all over. He might be getting deported back to Iran. He's a graduate student studying mechanical engineering at Northern Illinois University. It was so terrifying for all of us, for me and for my family. We had spent a lot of money and we have invested a lot for me to be here. Amin Rustai felt the same way. He was shocked. He's a grad student in the same department. Uh, What would come to my, you know, research here? If you believe it or not, I barely slept last night because of this news. It was really embarrassing. They were told their classes would be online this fall. But with a sudden ICE announcement, departments are scrambling to convert courses to be partially in person. Ashik Rahman is from Bangladesh. He says his fellow computer science students were told to prepare for online classes. I know many of them went back home. They can't really come back in right now because there are no flights or anything. During the spring semester, NIU had about 800 international students, mostly in grad programs. Only 20% of them went home during the pandemic, according to the International Student and Scholar Services Office. Many couldn't go home due to travel restrictions, and others just couldn't find a plane ticket. Stephanie Brown, the director of the International Student Office, says Chinese students couldn't get tickets for less than $5,000. Iranian students like Amin and Sina didn't have much choice. They're on F1 single-entry visas, and now they're scared that if they're deported, there's no way for them to get back and finish school. The University of Illinois joined other universities suing to end the restrictions, and the Trump administration has since rescinded the order. International students stuck in the U.S. during COVID-19 have faced a host of other issues, too. Some international students are struggling just to pay rent and groceries. 
They've had help from the university, mostly through a $500 emergency fund and some tuition reimbursement. There are students who say the university and international student office should be more responsive. Pia Satai is an undergrad student from Cambodia. If I were to be honest, they haven't responded to me since I sent them an email months ago. It's stressful to be stranded in a foreign country during a pandemic. Amin Rustai says some haven't seen their families in a long time. I have to be here for two years without seeing my father, my family. It's a very sad story, but we have to overcome these hardships to get our degree here. International students depend on their universities for much more than just education, work too. They have to work at their university. Many are graduate researchers and teaching assistants. Most grad assistant contracts ended in the spring and jobs are sparse in the summer. Amin Rustai has a contract and has been working, but he says he still hasn't been paid. He was told his payment could be processed in mid-July, but he's not sure of it. In the meantime, students are dipping into already slim savings. And because of the sanctions on Iran, Amin's family can't even send him money. Sina Tayebati has no contract, but has still been working over 20 hours, handling meetings, and working on his thesis research. I want to work on that, but at least we expect our advisors, or generally the university, to support us when we are working for the university without getting paid. He's hoping to get a TA position to make money in the fall, but there's no guarantee. COVID-19 has also made life very difficult for international students who just graduated. Normally, they'll have 60 to 90 days to find a job, but with many being laid off or unable to find work, time is running out and their immigration status could be in jeopardy. Lisa Diedrich is the executive director of Network of Nations, a nonprofit assisting international students. They have gone back to live with friends because that is their community. NIU is their community. Give them grace. The stress on them is huge. Dietrich is calling on Illinois lawmakers to help extend that time called optional practical training. She says in a perfect world, they'd give students until the end of the year. Taibati says the whole situation, especially the ICE deportation threat, is tragic for international students who can already feel isolated in the U.S. It's still uncertain how many new international students will make it to U.S. universities when they reopen next month. And like I said in the intro, I talked to Ayla about how she feels about reopening. And now it's like a month or less before the first day of school for a lot of school districts. So here's an example from DeKalb about what one of those reopening plans actually looks like and what goes into it. Students returning will see a different kind of classroom from what they left in March when schools shut down. Schools are enforcing health and safety guidelines to try and limit the spread of coronavirus. Students will be required to wear masks. Classrooms will be reoriented to account for social distancing. DeKalb's plan uses a hybrid in-person and online format. Ray Lechner is one of the district's two new interim superintendents. He, along with Griff Powell, took over in June. There's a direct relationship between in-person and remote. And then for the kids that the parents that choose at-home learning, it'll be, a, it'll be a different structure, but there will be stuff. There definitely will be stuff available. It just won't look the same. For returning students, the plan is to split them into two groups based on their instructional needs and stagger schedules so students won't come in every day of the week, only two to three days. And then we're going to flip the kids um, A and B. So one week you'll be at two days at school, the next week you'll be three days at school. They won't come for a full day either, only half, and they'll grab a to-go pre-packaged lunch and head home to learn remotely. There will be an option for parents who don't want to send their kids back in person this fall at all. But Lechner says the district still doesn't have a clear idea of what e-learning is going to look like for those students. They're sending out parent surveys now. Lechner says they hope to have a more precise picture by the end of July of how many students will be learning solely online. You know, we don't want teachers to have to create two different, completely simultaneous lesson plans. 
He's aware that there are also teachers and staff members who are at high risk or otherwise don't feel comfortable returning during the pandemic. They can work remotely from home with kids who are required to stay home for health conditions. Once we get all those surveys done, we're going to be able to align them and say, okay, we've got X number of teachers and X number of students, and how can we make it work? And what about the big question? What if a student attending in person tests positive for COVID-19? Lechner says the Illinois Department of Public Health has clear guidelines in place for that. Let's say it's a classroom. Then, you know, they say, well, the whole classroom needs to be quarantined for 14 days. No problem. We're going to flip from blended learning to remote learning for the teacher in that class. It could be real simple. If cases in the state do skyrocket and they have to close down again, he says they're ready to switch to virtual learning. Recently, the Illinois Federation of Teachers Union released a statement advising schools to stick to virtual learning this fall. Dan Morgan, the president of IFT, said, As of now, most schools can't ensure the proper social distancing and safety measures needed to teach in person. Lechner says DeKalb hired a company to sanitize buildings when students are learning at home. He says they haven't had a difficult time purchasing PPE and getting masks for their schools. As for extracurricular activities, that's all still up in the air. The Illinois High School Association hasn't made a decision on fall sports yet, but Lechner says not to hold your breath for contact sports like football. Other activities, Lechner says, may be able to go on in different formats. And also we're asking our, our extracurricular teachers to see if they can develop remote you know, options for clubs. Lechner says now that its reopening plan is presented, the district is going to keep soliciting feedback as parents decide whether or not they feel okay about their kids going back to school. Some have also expressed concerns that low-income families who may not have the flexibility to work from home will be forced to send their kids to school even if they would rather have them learning remotely. News Roundup time. It has been a hot second since we've had one of these things, but anyway, I mentioned in that story that the Illinois Federation of Teachers is now advocating, is now pushing for the school year to start out only remotely, not in person. Well, now the IFT, along with other unionized staff and faculty from colleges and universities across Illinois, are demanding the same thing of higher ed institutions. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Ayla Pechkowski as we talk about how weird this summer is, but at least she has some summer school to make it feel normal-ish. Even though I know it's not face-to-face, but like having the online interaction, yeah, it just like it just makes it like easier i guess to like cope with everything that's going on and it's nice to just like have that kind of routine that we're all used to like we're used to going to class we're used to having a quiz on friday and i think it's just nice yeah it's routine and you know i don't know about you but like i'm a people person so it's nice to have a routine where i can like see faces especially you're working you know i'm in a an apartment with just me and a roommate and he's working in an office all day so it's just it's just only me so the days that I get to have my like work zoom calls or like yeah. interviews like this I'm like yes I get yes. time. and I noticed that with the kids too like it was really odd but yesterday I logged on and some of the kids were already in the room because they logged on early and they were like so excited to start class you know they were like good morning and like they're they were so like pumped just to have that interaction and that's like kind of cool to see yeah it's like the highlight of our day when we get to talk to people like kind of adorable if you think about it that way (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's really cute yeah it is for sure have you have you picked up any any new hobbies or anything like that uh, during the during the quarantine or are you watching a 
15-year-old baseball highlights on YouTube like me? No, I'm not. But unfortunately, I have um, become a lover of TikTok, which is oh, you're in on it? kind of embarrassing. But yeah, it's Ayla, it got so bad for me that I had to delete the app because I, I knew that <laughs> time sake. I was like, I need this out of my life or I'll never leave. Yes. And so now it's kind of funny because like I'm pulling it into classroom conversation and the kids are like, oh my gosh. I was about to say that. Are they like, they must be a hundred percent stoked about that. <laughs> yeah, they're super stoked because like this week we were talking about uh, proper and common nouns. And I'm like, well, a common noun would be like phone app, but we could go proper noun and do TikTok and the kids are like, oh my goodness. So it was really funny. Have you just been watching or have you ventured into even trying to make your own TikTok videos? Are you at that point yet? No, no, no. I just, no. I just like, I, I just like. I, I'll, I'll watch from afar, but I, I don't have the audacity for it. Yeah. <laughs> One of these days yeah. I'll get to a dance challenge, but I don't have it in me yet. <laughs> I know. I'm always really impressed, but. Maybe one of these days we'll get there. We'll get there. Yep. <laughs> so you, you teach English and special ed. Is that how you mainly mm -hmm. say it? Yeah. So I teach English or I taught English, I should say. And then, um, I spent half the day um, teaching special education, but instructional English. And then now this year will be my first year um, transitioning into um, the administration world and I'll be a dean. So, Ooh. yeah, so that'll be kind of different, but I'm excited. Yes. What are your expectations for that so far? Is it? I'm not really quite sure on like that. I just know that I'm transitioning to a new high school in the district, which I'm really going to miss the kids um, that I worked with at Roosevelt. They are just incredible. But I think that a lot is in the air because of everything that's going on with COVID. So it's kind of like having to be flexible. Yeah, and it's like there's so much that's going to be different about this year that it, it actually yeah. kind of feels somewhat appropriate that you're like also in a new setting doing a new thing. It's like everything. Yeah. Let's just completely make everything new. Yeah, just let's, let's just redo it all. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny, you know, when I got the email from the person that nominated you and I saw, you know, English special ed, the English thing I was really thinking about because I've realized, this, I mean, this this episode I think will be like the 25th episode of the show or something like that, like mid twenties. Oh, wow. And I think there's been like a disproportionate amount of English teachers that have been on the show. And I was like, why? And I think that I've got an idea. I'm going to run it by you. And I think that part of the reason is that English, you know, we're talking about art, reading and writing and all those things that I think that maybe when you get to talk about that and analyze those things, that maybe it has an opportunity to connect with people on like a different level than maybe it is to do that in like a chemistry class or something like that. That was my hypothesis that I was like, maybe it's just easier to have like different connections when you're talking about arts and writing and like more personal things like that. That was my best guess. What do you think? Or maybe there's just a lot of English teachers that people like, I don't know. <laughs> No, I think you're right. I think in, when we like go into the humanities, I think that a lot of times people, like what you said, the analysis of like our own narrative. And I think that when we analyze like 
you know, intentions and this and that within characters or just the ability to talk about things that maybe aren't so concrete, like numbers or, you know, I think it lets people almost feel this connection, like what it means to be human, which is a lot, you know, like, I mean, there are courses like on that in universities, like on English and like, what does it mean to be human? What is truth? Like all of these big questions. And I think kids just feel like they can connect Right. And we're like, in a way, we're trafficking in, in vulnerability and trying to yeah. embrace that in ways that like, you know, if I'm in a biology class, it's not like a lot where that teacher's going to be like, I need you to really be vulnerable for this experience. Mm-hmm. Like that would be that doesn't exactly happen that way. Yeah. And I think it's almost like empowering to find your own voice. And I, I just I and again, it's I don't think that other teachers don't do it in other disciplines. Right, yeah. I think it's just like so almost like natural in an English course when we're asking students to write a narrative, to analyze characters. I think when students like realize, oh my goodness, I'm actually really good at this and I do have a voice, I think it is like empowering. For sure. And then also, I think you've almost got a second part of that, which is the special ed portion of this, which that connection is on a completely different level, I feel like, than, than most other, you know, the, the amount of time that you get to spend with those students and kind of what that relationship is like is, is mm-hmm. pretty fundamentally different than with a lot of other teachers. Yeah, and I think it, it's, like, really special to have that caseload that you work with because yeah. it's, like, you just know so much about the student and you become really close, like, I have a student where the primary guardian is the grandma and it's just kind of cool when, you know, they'll walk, they'll walk into class and be like, my grandma says hi, or, you know, like that. And it's like nice to just really like get to know the student and help them meet these goals that you set, these academic goals or transition goals. And it's like, you're so invested in seeing the success and seeing them accomplish these goals. That is just really neat. Yeah, yeah, you've got a complete view of their family in a different way. Yeah, exactly. Is it the greater, more broad impact that you can have at the administrative level that made you want to go into that then? Yeah, it's just kind of like that idea of impact and just like wanting to like truly like advocate for the students and just, you know, just help see like, school improvement and I just um I don't know and I love our district you know it's like our district I I think RPS is incredible and so I'm just like this is really the district that I would like to learn and grow in and just see that greater impact. Is that something that you start to realize over your first years teaching is it something that you've always known that you wanted to go into this or no? No, I, um, no, I did not. I, <laughs> I did not. I just started out and I was like, oh, you know, I, I really want to be an English teacher. And then that's what I did. And then I was like, oh, I, you know, I want to get my master's and I'll do it in special education because I wanted, you know, I, I think special education is incredibly important, but I think that, um, you know, there's a lack of special education teachers. And so, then after that, like I said, I've been blessed to have an incredible administrators and I'm like, oh my goodness. And they were so like, they were so encouraging and just seeing them and seeing the impact like that they had on our school, it makes or breaks the school, you know, administration and the administrators I had were incredible. And then they kind of inspired me and I'm like, I would really like to do this. Yeah. You've been at RPS for how long now? 
so this will be my fifth year. Your fifth year. Are you originally from the Northern Illinois-ish area? Yes. Mm -hmm. I um, grew up in Lake Marengo, right on the outskirts, and then I went to high school in Crystal Lake, and then my family lives in Harvard, and so I'm like from the area, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yes, I am. Uh, I was I was raised and grew up in Sandwich, so okay. South, uh, not even suburbs, just the country. My backyard was a cornfield. It was a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, so with special ed over the last, you know, because I know that it, I know that it's different depending on the district and depending on the certain uh, student situation. But like during the e-learning over this spring, were you able to? stay you know talk to them pretty regularly stay in contact with them or what did that look like for you yeah um I was able to stay in contact with like at least my caseload pretty regularly I think the cool thing about that was just being able to like see them that they were invested and they still wanted to complete their work I mean a lot of students you know they they weren't as motivated as they typically are in school, but um, a lot of my caseload, they still were checking in almost daily. And like it, you know, some of them, it's kind of funny. It's like, you don't respond within like 10 minutes and you have two more emails. Like, did you see my email? Did you see my email? Can you help me? And so that was really cool to see. But I mean, yeah. And then the nice part is again, those students that you have the close relationships to, you're still you're still holding the IEP meetings. You still have grandma on Zoom, like all of these things. So like, that's kind of cool. Okay. So was there anything that you saw during that period where you're like, that's a good idea. And I like, I could have used that during my you know, normal, you know, in-person, you know, pre-pandemic work. Yes. So I think the thing that was so interesting was at the beginning of the second semester, before any of this happened, we went to this news literacy conference, right? And this is like before before anything was even mentioned. About, back, when, back when you could go to conferences. Yeah, back when we could go to conferences. <laughs> and I think, you know, we were like, this is incredible. This is really useful information. How are we going to tie it in next year, right? It like wasn't like, oh, how are we going to tie it in in March? But then this all happened and I was like, no, actually in my nonfiction unit, I am like, I'm going to do a section on news literacy. And I think like the, the cool thing that this has taught me is just how important it is. It's not something that is a skill that really can be put off because it's like relevant in so many ways. And especially now in that educating people, um, you know, just, with what they're reading and what they're intaking and processing and is it credible? Like, is the source credible? And how, and if it's not, how did you know, how did you come to that conclusion? So I think that, that this um, time period has been perfect. Like I've taken that away from it and I'm like, man, I wish I did this before. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think we talk about like the 2016 election as like a time where on social media, that type of, news literacy and trying to identify misinformation like that's when it really kind of got into our public consciousness but the pandemic has been an entirely different level and i think there's a lot of us that are like i'm having to text my uh you know some family relatives to be like i don't think that what you're seeing is what you think that you're seeing and it's it's very it's a weird position to like have to call out other people on but 
especially for people that are in middle school or in high school, I think that's one of the more useful skills for the next 10 years is being able to know how to identify credible information and, and yes. also it's not. Yes, and I think that, that it's just, I don't know, it's interesting and it's cool to see students be able to go back and like really defend how they knew that something was credible or not credible and just kind of the analysis of the sources. I just, you know, it's like, sure, it's great to do sources for literature. Like I'm not saying it's not, but it it's incredibly useful to be able to identify credible information in like in this situation as well. Yeah, and it is kind of touching on like some things that I do remember learning in school, which is like, you know, talking about primary sources and when yes. you're researching what this is, but with social media and with, you know, fake news or whatever you call it, it's just like matched up to the nth degree. Yes. And, and it's funny because the, stu like, the students were even like, oh, yeah, I saw this on Facebook or I saw that on Facebook or like uh, just going into the blog where someone claimed that they had an oil that could cure it. Or a student was like, oh, yeah, like I in it was in the beginning, like I read the thing about the bleach. And I'm like, yes, yes, we did read the thing about the bleach. And <laughs> it was funny. Like it's it's funny because everyone, everyone pretty much had seen some kind of fake news on it. For sure. And then there's just, and I can, believe me, as a, as a reporter, I could talk about this all day, but then you could even get into like, what is misinformation and what is, yes. what is biases? How can we yes. identify our own inherent biases even when we're seeking out information? That's yes. Yeah. So it, yeah, that, that has been like, I think probably the one thing that I took away from it is like, man, I really wish I was invested in, in news literacy before this, you know, but I think it, it is very fitting that, again, we got to go to that conference in the beginning of the second semester. That was really cool. Yeah, I, I think last, maybe, actually, it might have been last July, I got to interview some people from, I believe they're called the News Literacy Project. Yes, and, that's, that's yeah. who did ours, yes. That's what I was mm -hmm. going to ask you about. I bet it was the same organization, and I was, yes. and I, I I need to call them back, because <laughs> it's a great time. To call. Oh, yeah, and they, I mean, they have incredible, like, resources right now, especially, like, on um, their uh, weekly thing called The Sift, and they have incredible resources, and, I mean, they, like, they even break it down on, like, finding truth and this and it is, yeah, they're incredible. That's awesome. So I thought about this the other day when I was interviewing a teacher, and it was weird because I, I, like, did the mental math where it's, like, we made this whole joke about how, like, no one has any idea how time works during the pandemic. Like, what is a week? What is a month? These are all just arbitrary terms we've made up. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're going back to school next month, which seems... Yeah. When I said that for the first time, I, wow, that seemed crazy. It seemed like, no, that's should it seemed like an amorphous far off period where like eventually we'll get back to that but it's a lot closer than I think people outside of education realize but for you I'm sure you are hyper aware of just how close that is mm -hmm. how are you feeling about everything about uh, being able to to go back in person you know with all the qualifications that we have for that now yeah so like I'm just torn because part of me is just you know, so excited uh, about the comfort of like it going back to like quote unquote normal. I mean, I know, I know it's not like I know our world is forever changed, but it's like almost like, okay, like I, 
I'm going to get like some kind of routine back like that. Like, so yeah. that part I'm very excited about, you know, and like the, so again, that social interaction, like that is like, okay, that's awesome. The part where you become worried or you become apprehensive is like, so when we do go back, what is going to happen? Like, what, what does that mean for our community? What does that mean for our students, for, for the parents and guardians that our students are with? And like, is this the right decision? You know, so it's like, um, it's like you're torn. You're, ex you're happy and excited and like, yes, like I get to go back to the job I like, I love, but then you are a little bit nervous because all of this is the unknown. Right. And that's been the tough part, of, part about everything is that, you know, you want, you want news kind of, if it's going to be bad news, fine. If it's going to be good news, great. But I just want some kind of clarity. And when there is so much that's just completely unknown, it's, it's really difficult. And, and that's, I think, the big part about why it's like, it seems crazy that it's a month away, that there are not necessarily like huge question marks, but it is like, I don't feel like we're really going to know what school looks like post-pandemic until we're there. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, I think we can have an idea and just like really plan ahead and be prepared. Like, I think that is amazing, but I agree with you. I think that there are some things that we just will not know because we haven't gone through this before until we're there. We, we don't even know what we're going to necessarily have to adjust or not adjust because we're not there yet and we haven't even tried it yet. Right. And it's going to take a lot of like humility and flexibility to be like, if something is clearly not working to be on a large scale, be like, okay, we have to adjust. We have to change because this is uncharted water. Yes. And I'm sure you're getting a different view of it too, since you're in more of a broader administrative role now that, you know, being able to have these conversations and what it's going to look like within within your school that you're going to be going to, which I don't know if we mentioned, which, what high school are you going to be at next year? So, yeah, so I'll be going to East High School. East High School. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, what has it been like to have those conversations over the last couple months? Well, um, I haven't, I haven't had a lot of them because I, um, it, it's like, it's been a recent transition. So I haven't had a lot of the conversations, but it has really, like you said, been a lot about um, like the flexibility and the emphasis on planning. Thankfully, the administration that is there is like super, super strong, incredibly helpful. I mean, they truly are invested in the good of the school and students. So that's really, that's, that is reassuring. Like, you know, that I'll get to learn from them. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see because I know that I've, um, just a recent story that I did was if you're on different like school or community or parents and teachers Facebook groups and things like that even where it, over the last couple like maybe month it's just been post after post person after person being like I don't know what it's going to look like should I homeschool my kid this year and and I've been able to have a few conversations and, and, and do some stories about like what is it like like people are going to be trying that for the first time and that there are going to be for sure, parents that are comfortable with it, you know, no matter how safe and how well-prepared districts are, because we just don't know what it's going to look like. But then I'm, I'm sure there's going to be some older or high-risk teachers, too, that are a little bit unsure or hesitant about, about going back. 
Yeah. And I think that that is like just so important to recognize. And I think that, I think people do recognize that, you know, we, we also have to look out for the teachers. Like, you know, I think people, people are super respectful of that and no one wants to put staff in harm's way. And then I think it's important to recognize that maybe some parents are going to be really nervous and they're not sure what decision, um, you know, it was even hard for me wrestling with putting my daughter into preschool this year and being like, well, what's going to happen with her having to wear the mask and this and that. And, um, so I, I think that that's just normal. I think that just as a parent, it's like, yeah, I mean, I don't see how you couldn't be nervous. Right. And, and like I said, I, I don't know what, even if districts are super on top of communication and being like, here's what the protocols are going to be like, like, I don't know how you really make someone feel a hundred percent comfortable with it. I don't think it's possible to the pre-K and those younger kids having to wear the mask. I've, I've definitely heard a lot. And, and the same thing with, you know, special ed students and, mm-hmm. and, and what that's going to look like. And yeah. And that's been a, I mean, that's been a topic um, too. I'm not saying like um, debated among us, like I'm not, right, not, yeah. But I'm just saying, like, I've read and I have heard different things with what What if a student does have, like, sensory issues or things like that with the mask? And is I think that, again, like, this pandemic just goes to show that there are just so many things that we don't think about and we've never had to think about. And it's just, like, very wild. And, again, I think it's been really good about helping, like, people – just be more flexible like I know I I'm not flexible routine oriented person oh yeah I love routine like I just I'm like you know it's very comforting but again this has taught me that you know you have to be flexible and adapting like learning and then adapting and reflecting but I think that that's so so related to education like we're constantly reflecting what went, what went well what can we improve how can we drive change? Like all of these things. So it's kind of interesting because it's like we do that all the time with our instruction and teaching. So now it's like we have to be reflecting like, okay, what can we do different? Yeah, it's the same thing we were talking about with news literacy. It's like the same yeah. toolkit that we had. Yes. Using it for a slightly different thing than we maybe ever thought we would have to. Yeah, exactly. Last question. And this is super open-ended so uh, you know however you see fit you, you could answer but I like to end a lot of my interviews with this question which is uh, we'll relate it to going back to the in-person in, in a month okay is there anything about that conversation that you think is more important than people might realize from the outside or you wish people were talking about more when they talked about it I think what I wish people would realize is people are passionate in what they believe like kids should or should not be going back. I mean, people have a stance on this, right. And they are passionate right now about the education system and what they think should be happening. I just, I just wish though that as passionate as people are about this right now related to the education system, that they would be as passionate and cared just as much when things are happening with just anything, politics, new legislation, things like that, that they would want their voice heard just as much. And like, just like you are sticking up for teachers and students now, 
and you are like, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is, you know, we need more funding because the kids need to be protected, which I, I do agree. But I just wish, have that voice after the pandemic too. Like care just as much about your school and your district after as well. We're expected to, to do it all and, and like save it all, put it all back together. But it, schools don't go away after the pandemic and we still need people to stick up and fight for education and public education. We need people to fight for it. And so it's like, don't just fight for it now. You're going to have, you need to keep fighting for it. You still have your voice after the pandemic. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Well, thanks a ton for, for jumping on here and having yeah. a 45 minute conversation or whatever. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on this show. This is how we get guests like Ayla. You send them our way, teacherslounge at niu.edu. And subscribe wherever you're hearing this. Leave us a rating, share it, any th- option that you have, do it. And you know, hopefully positive would be great. Thanks, of course, to Ayla for being on this show and to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the music. Thanks to Spencer Tripp for making our logo. I have been your host, Peter Medlin, and we will be back very soon.